Are you interested in a true crime podcast with a different point of view with hosts who have seen the justice system from the inside? Then you should check out Alice and Brett and their show, The Prosecutors. In every episode, Alice and Brett bring a unique perspective as full-time prosecutors to the most famous and debated true crime mysteries, whether it's John Benet Ramsey, Maura Murray, Scott Peterson, or the Delphi murders, they dig deep to bring you the details that you won't hear anywhere else. The Prosecutor's Podcast is about more than just storytelling. Alex and Brett will walk you through the legal problems lurking behind every case. They break down the complexities of the criminal justice system with a little bit of humor and personal touch. And it's not just true crime. They bring the same training and approach that they've learned as prosecutors to classic mysteries like the Dialtov Pass incident and the ghost ship Marie Celeste. So if you're looking for a true crime podcast with a different point of view, a different approach, The Prosecutors is the podcast for you. I listen to this one myself. Highly recommend. Britt and Alice are great. You can find The Prosecutors wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Stoveleg Media. Igniting conversation. This started a long life of group homes, detention centers, and ultimately prison. At what point did they intervene? Why didn't they intervene? It's a situation that I would not want to find myself in. I would never want to get attacked, and I would never want to have to defend myself by by killing somebody. And the big question we always ask, John, is justice been served here? This is True Crime Cast. This is True Crime Cast. Jamie here with John for another great case. Uh, you all right, man? Yeah, man. I'm doing great trying to uh, pull up Patreon to see who we need to thank today. A lot of people, and we said this over on the December Patreon episode, but if you joined Patreon recently, we are uncharacteristically ahead in recording. We will get to your name and thank you as we do everyone because we have a lot of people Thank this time around, and we are super thankful for everybody that joins Patreon. Bonus content over there. We're putting every episode up early with no ads in it, so a lot of good stuff happening over on Patreon. Have you found the list yet? I do. I really don't know where to start, so we might repeat a couple of names, and that's okay. That's all right. All right, we got Callum, who came in uh, and took advantage of that 15% discount. We have Michelle, who came in at a $10 level, so Jamie, why don't you give Michelle a special shout-out? Michelle, we really appreciate your support and you uh, joining us over on Patreon. We're going to send you an autographed photo of our faces. And a big thanks to you for you uh, supporting us in that way. We have Chris coming in at $7. So Chris will get an autograph. Thank you, Chris. Matt took advantage of the yearly 15% discount coming in at $3 level for a year. Matt, you to man. Uh, Kristen came in at $10 a month. So Jamie, another shout out, especially for Kristen. It's Kirsten, I think. 
And I know that because her birthday is coming up. Oh, well, I'm sorry that I mispronounced Happy your name. Happy birthday, Kirsten. We uh, we hear your birthday's coming up. So thanks for joining us. And I hope you have the best birthday ever. I didn't have the right focal. I have bifocals because I'm an old man. Didn't John have actually the right has one on there. trifocals. Well, you don't have to tell them all my business. <laughs> so many focals. Uh, who else do we have over there, Jamie? We have Leanna coming in at the $3 level to get that bonus episode each and every month. She also has access to all of our previous monthly Patreon episodes. And last but certainly not least, Shelly came in at the $20 level. Shelly has selected a case for us to cover. Really excited to get to that in the next month or so. And she joined for a year. So kudos to you for that big donation and uh, committing to a year for that 15% discount. Yeah, Shelly, thank you so much. That's a huge support. All of you guys that join Patreon, we really appreciate you. We say it all the time. We are genuine when we say it. We would not and could not do this show without our Patreon fans. All right, Jamie, we, uh, feels good to get a lot of thank yous. That feels great. What are we talking about today? We're going to talk about a case that I've been excited about for a long time. That's Whitey Bulger. His name has come up in at least two other episodes we've covered that I can remember off the top of my head and some other stories that I've just been fascinated about. So excited to dig in, talk about the history of this mobster and, kind of what he brought to uh, all this pain he brought to people. And uh, he he was involved. It's kind of like he's almost like the Forrest Gump of crime. Like he's in a lot of different crime stories. All right. Well, we'll get started. Uh, Just a side note here. I think our writer, Mackenzie, uh, does a fantastic job, but I think she hates me. She put like three words in my first sentence that she knows I can't say. Yeah, I'm excited to uh, edit this one. Yeah. So uh, have that finger ready to push some edits there, buddy. All right. Get us rolling. James Joseph Bulger Jr. was born September 3rd, 1929 in Dorchester, Massachusetts. Excellent job, sir. I just want to say that I also did that with no edits, right? <laughs> I, I cannot confirm or deny. He was one of six children in a working-class family of Irish immigrants. Now, his father was James Bulger, and he was a laborer who actually lost an arm in an industrial accident Jamie, we grew up in coal mining towns. We probably know several people in similar situations who were hurt, you know, kind of on the job. But they grew up in public housing project in South Boston, and it was known as Southie. Now, Southie was a community of approximately 30,000 people, and most of those were Irish Americans. So when he was young, he earned the nickname Whitey because of his whitish blonde hair. It's also the setting for my favorite movie, Goodwill hunting. Fair enough. He was a troublemaker from an early age, always looking for a fight, getting into trouble. As a teenager, he was involved in a street gang that stole cars and mugged people. He was arrested several times for forgery, larceny, assault and battery, and armed robbery. And he was sentenced to five years in a juvenile detention center. In 1948, when his time at that school was done, He was 20 years old, and he enlisted in the Air Force. He really didn't have any better options at the time. Coming out of prison, there weren't a lot of prospects. But that doesn't mean that his behavior changed while he was in the military. He served time in military jail for assault before he was finally arrested again, and then he went AWOL. However, despite all of this trouble in the military, he was somehow honorably discharged in 1952. Once his time in the military was done, he was able to return home to Massachusetts. 
Well, Whitey didn't waste any time getting back into what he did best, and that was crime. In 1956, he was arrested for robbing banks in his home state as well as Rhode Island and Indiana. Now, he was convicted and sentenced to 20 years in prison, but he only served nine of them. So apparently back then, prison sentences work out the pretty much the way they do now. You don't get what you're given, right? And especially, I don't know if his juvenile record was expunged or whatever, but with a history of multiple arrests to get over half your sentence cut off is just crazy to me. Three of those years were actually spent in a famous prison called Alcatraz. We've covered that same prison on this show before in the past. While in federal prison in Atlanta, though, Whitey was used as a human subject in a CIA-sponsored program called MK Ultra. Now, let's stop. This is why I sent this episode to McKenzie, because I, when I, so again, Whitey Bulger came up in our Alcatraz episode, in our Richard Kuklinski episode. He's come up a lot. But when I read his name in an article about MK Ultra, it really piqued my interest. MK Ultra was, I guess, on the face, supposedly some kind of health testing where they gave people LSD. But it was really a CIA operation trying to uh, use LSD for mind control. So Whitey Bulger was involved. We think that Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, may have been involved at some point. So this is just fascinating to me that he happens to show up everywhere. Now, this secret program was run by Sidney Gottlieb, the CIA chief chemist at the time. Gottlieb used doctors and other subcontractors to administer LSD in large doses to prisoners, addicts, and other people who were unlikely to complain, including his own colleagues. Like, this feels like a made-for-TV series, but this actually happened. It did, and I encourage you to go and, and read about it. I mean, I think we can make it work for True Crime Cast, but just generally the story, it's so deep, and all these government experiments, I don't know. I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Yeah. So like you said, his goal was to develop mind control techniques by giving them LSD and observing the effects. Decades later, CIA Director Stansfield Turner testified to the Supreme Court that the agency had been searching for a drug that could prepare someone for debilitating an individual or even killing another person. The prison volunteers, including Whitey, were told that they could get reduced time for their participation so they're really being coerced here to participate in this really controversial program. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, they're, it's, it's kind of a secret mission anyway, right? So, Did they know they were getting LSD, or were they just told it was another drug, like a, like a pill or another form of substance? I think you know they I mean? knew it was LSD, that they were just trying to test the effects of it, but I don't know. You get out of prison early, you get some recreational drugs while you're in there. Do you really think it was coercion or was it fun? I don't know. I I've never taken good, LSD. I don't know. That's a good point. I, I haven't either. So they were also told that the experiment was medical research into a cure for schizophrenia. So, yeah. I mean, I don't think they had 100% of the information they needed to, like, volunteer, you know, 100%. Anyway, Whitey participated for 18 months and claiming that he was dosed more than 50 times. Whitey described the experience as nightmarish. He said that it took him into the depths of insanity. Coming from a person who's insanely violent, that means a lot to me. So maybe I wouldn't have enjoyed that in prison. 
Well, he actually kept journals where he said how terrified he was to take the LSD and that he heard voices when he was taking it. So, I mean, it sounds like it was, you know, simulating the effects of schizophrenia is kind of what it sounds like to me. And I, I've never done LSD, but I've heard of people who have from my hometown where they did a couple of doses and then their lives were never the same after that. Yeah. So now he also later claimed that he was plagued with nightmares, that he had gruesome hallucinations and was never able to sleep more than a few hours at a time. When he returned home to Boston in 1965, Whitey worked as a janitor and then got a job as a construction worker. Then he started working as a bookmaker and a loan shark for a local mobster named Donald Killeen. The Killeen gang had dominated South Boston for over 20 years. They were run by three brothers, Donnie, Kenny, and Eddie. In 1971, the youngest brother, Kenny, allegedly shot Michael Dwyer, who was a member of the rival Mullen gang. This resulted in a gang war and a string of killings throughout Boston. It's during this gang war that Whitey allegedly committed his first murder. It's a story that seems like it should be in a soap opera. Apparently, he went to kill Mullen gang member Paul McGonigal, but instead shot his twin brother, Donald. So essentially, he thought that Paul was driving by, and after he shot, he realized that it was actually Donald in the driver's seat. So when... Paul found out about this. He ambushed and murdered one of the Killeen's top people, Billy O'Sullivan, because he thought O'Sullivan was the person that killed his brother. So we think of these mob wars happening in New York. You watch The Godfather, but this is real life happening right here in Boston. It became clear pretty quickly to Whitey that the Killeen gang was losing the war to the Mullen gang. So he secretly approached a guy named Howie Winter. Now, Howie was the leader of the Winter Hill Gang, another Irish mob organization in Boston. Now, John, it seems like these were really good criminals. They're stealing things. They have criminal enterprises, but their gang naming chops are not very strong. These are really weak gang names. Now, Whitey actually told Howie that he could end this gang war by going himself and killing the Killeen brothers. On May 13th of 1972, Whitey's boss, Donald Killeen, was gunned down outside his home. Rumors out there were that Mullen enforcers killed Killeen and that it wasn't Whitey, but Whitey and the other Killeen brothers fled Boston thinking they might be out next. Then, like out of a scene from Godfather, the leader of the Mullen gang arranged for a meeting of the leaders of all the Boston gangs. Now, Whitey went as a representative for the Colleen's. So at this meeting, the Colleen's and the Mullins joined forces all under the Winter Hill Gang led by Howie Winter. Soon after this meeting, the sole surviving Colleen, Kenny, was jogging in Boston when Whitey called him over to a car. Now, he allegedly told him, it's over, you're out of business, there's no more warnings. During his time with the Winter Hill Gang, Whitey formed a partnership with Stephen Philomeni. Now, Whitey rose to the, through the ranks pretty quickly in the Winter Hill Gang, and he and Philomeni started their own criminal racket. He became known for his shrewd, ruthless, and cunning abilities. Now, he sanctioned several killings of people who, you know, quote-unquote, stepped out of line, including Spike O'Toole. Paul McGonigal, 
and Eddie Connors, also Tommy King and Buddy Leonard. I feel like I'm throwing a lot of names out, so sorry <laughs> if you're having a hard time keeping up. In 1979, Hallie Winter was sent to prison for fixing horse races. How do you fix a horse race? I think... I'm asking for a friend. I think it's more like insider knowledge of what's happening instead of actually going out there and talking a horse into running slowly. Well, I just kind of pictured, did he like somehow cripple the other horses? <laughs> that seems a little... Uh, maybe the jockey didn't push as hard. I don't, uh, I'm not familiar with the ins and outs of horse racing, which is sad because I live in Kentucky. I mean, again, I'm just looking for ways to raise a little money over the holidays. Waddy assumed leadership for the Winter Hill Gang, and over the next 16 years, he controlled a significant portion of his criminal happenings there in Boston. When we get back from the break, we'll talk about the growth of Whitey's empire and what ultimately brought the mobster down. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. People who grew up in Boston knew the tales of Whitey Bulger. They all knew the stories of him shooting people between the eyes, stabbing people with ice picks, and burying victims in secret graveyards. And it got to the point where there are a lot of myths about Whitey, and, and people thought of him in some ways as an Irish Robin Hood. He was very charitable. He gave out turkeys on Thanksgiving and protected his own people from the police that were hated in Southie at this time and from outsiders coming in and trying to damage the community. The legend was more intriguing after Whitey's brother William became the president of the Massachusetts State Senate. William always denied knowing that his brother was a mobster. He said he loved him and he couldn't give up on his brother and report him to the law. Whitey's code of the streets was well known. His gang would never sell drugs to kids. They only trust Irish people and you never lie to a friend or a partner. And most importantly, no snitching. But this mythical idea was shattered when people found out that for 15 years, Whitey Bulger had also been working as an FBI informant. That's he's a turn a, of events. He's a snitch himself. <laughs> so like this whole time he's been doing this, he's also been an FBI informant. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, you know, just a, probably a spoiler alert that probably doesn't end well for Whitey. I would imagine. Let's keep on going. 1975. Whitey agreed to work with the FBI as a top echelon informant. Now his FBI handler was John J. Connolly, another child of South Boston. So Connolly was able to recruit Whitey's 
Top Lieutenant Stephen Flamini in 1965. At the time, the FBI was obsessed with the Italian-American crime families. So Whitey gave him a steady stream of information on the Patricia crime family based on based out of Providence, Rhode Island. Now, the gang was often a rival to the Winter Hill gang, and by disintegrating the crime family, Whitey was able to take full control of his area. Whitey's informant relationship quickly turned corrupt, so the crime boss began to manipulate Connolly and other FBI agents. Over time, Connolly even began telling Whitey when other authorities were investigating the Winter Hill gang. Now, he ultimately cast a blind eye to all of Whitey's criminal activities. So, I guess it's not as bad as it seems for Whitey. No, it's not. And this is essentially the uh, the plot of the movie The Departed, right? And it said that Jack Nicholson's character was based on Whitey Bulger. He was an FBI informant at the same time. He was operating all of these crime syndicates and operations. And this really follows along closely with that movie, which had a really, really weird ending, but... I mean, it's no spoilers like there. everybody's corrupt. Everybody's corrupt in this story. It is. Well, we have a crime show. Maybe just everybody's corrupt. Fair enough. Everybody ever. Now, let's talk about some of the things he was into. He was really not okay with desegregating schools, and he took action to try to prevent that. It was in late August or early September of 1974. Why did an accomplice set fire to an elementary school outside of Wesley? They were trying to intimidate the district court and judge Wendell Arthur Garrity after he mandated a plan to desegregate schools in the city of Boston through busing. A year later, Whitey and another unidentified person tossed a Molotov cocktail into the JFK birthplace after Senator Ted Kennedy vocally supported desegregating schools in Boston. Whitey then used black spray paint to write Bus Teddy on the sidewalk just outside of the building. In 1980, Whitey was approached by Louis Latif, who was a Lebanese-American neighborhood bookmaker. Now, Louis had been stealing money from his partners in the bookkeeping operation, and he was using the money to traffic cocaine. Now, he had not only refused to pay Whitey a cut of the drug profits, but he had killed two people without Whitey's permission. Now, Louis wanted to kill his partner, but Whitey would not sanction the murder. Lewis said that he was going to do it anyway, and Whitey said, you've stepped over the line. You're not going to be a bookmaker anymore. Shortly after this incident, Lewis was found stuffed in a garbage bag in the trunk of his car. Now, the car had been dumped in the south end, and Lewis had been stabbed with an ice pick and shot. I mean, all signs point to Whitey here, right? Yeah, a little bit of overkill there, and... In case you're not familiar with what bookmaking is, that means you're taking bets on usually sporting events, potentially other things, but you're the one that's taking the bets and kind of financing that operation. Also known as a bookie. Yeah. In 1982, a South Boston cocaine dealer named Edward Brian Holleran approached the FBI and said that he saw Whitey and Flemmy murdering Louis Latif. Connolly was telling Whitey and Flemmy everything that Holleran was saying. So again, that's... Whitey's FBI connection. He said Halloran was talking in an attempt to get the FBI to put Halloran and his family in the witness protection program after he ratted on Whitey Bulger. Soon after this, on May 11th of 1982, Whitey was tipped off that Halloran was back in Boston. 
So they staked out a restaurant where they knew that Hallerman was having dinner. He had run into a friend, a guy named Michael Donahue, while he was there, and he offered to give Halloran a ride home. As Donahue and Halloran drove out of the parking lot, another gang member named Kevin Weeks signaled to Whitey that they were on their way. Whitey drove up with another man armed with a silenced Mac-10, and Whitey had a thirty caliber carbine. Both were disguised and opened fire on the car. Donahue was shot in the head and killed immediately. Halloran lived long enough to identify his attacker as Whitey's associate, James Flynn. Flynn was later tried and acquitted and remained the prime suspect until Weeks agreed to cooperate with investigators about the shooting, and he identified Whitey as one of the shooters, because he was. Yeah, during the mid-1980s, Whitey started summoning drug dealers from in and out of Boston to his headquarters, Whitey would meet with a drug dealer and then tell them that he had been offered a substantial sum in return for the dealer's murder. And then he would demand a cash payment for not killing them. So basically, these drug dealers are paying him for their very lives, but it's just, it's crazy. Well, he's calling them in and saying, hey, uh, somebody wants me to kill you. If you don't want that to happen, you're going to give me some money or I'm going to take their money and kill you. Yeah. So it's like a fake hit in order to get money from him. I mean, you're going to pay to keep yourself alive. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's brilliant, actually. Now, this worked until Whitey saw how much he could make selling drugs. So I guess he brought these people in and realized, hey, these people are loaded. Why don't I cut out the middleman and just dr- deal drugs myself? Absolutely. <laughs> now, most of South Boston's cocaine and marijuana trafficking was under the control of mobster John Shea. Whitey thought about killing Shay, but decided to instead extort him for a weekly cut of his profits. So, yeah. He also enforced strict rules about drug sales, and it kind of, you kind of mentioned it earlier, but this was including no, no LSD, no PCP, and never sell to children. Now, dealers who didn't play by his rules would meet the violent side of Whitey. During a time called the Troubles in Northern Ireland, Most people in South Boston sided with the Irish Republican Army, or the IRA. There were large efforts to raise money to smuggle weapons for IRA campaigns against the British presence in Northern Ireland, and Whitey was a big supporter of this cause. By shaking down drug dealers, he helped raise a million dollars to buy weapons for the IRA to be shipped across the Atlantic Ocean in a fishing vessel called the Valhalla. In 1984, he supervised the loading of Valhalla with 91 rifles, 8 submachine guns, 13 shotguns, 51 handguns, 11 bulletproof vests, 70,000 rounds of ammunition, and a variety of hand grenades and rocket heads. The Valhalla met up with an IRA ship called the Merida Ann that was stopped by the Irish Navy. The entire arsenal was seized by IRA members, and they were arrested. One crew member, John McIntyre, was arrested later after coming out of hiding. He confessed to his role in the weapon smuggling and told Boston police all about it, implicating Whitey in this illegal procedure. Connolly from the FBI let Whitey know about this investigation, and Whitey and Fleming met with McIntyre in a South Boston house. Whitey wanted to avoid killing McIntyre if at all possible, and he offered to send him to South America with money, and the understanding that he could never talk to any of his friends or family ever again. After they interrogated McIntyre over several hours, 
Whitey determined that McIntyre could not be trusted to cut his family ties. So they killed McIntyre, then went upstairs to take a nap while his associates removed the body, removed his teeth so he couldn't be identified, and then they buried him in the basement. By the early 1990s, the fact that the FBI was helping Whitey had become apparent to local and state police. They were convinced that Whitey was responsible for some of the most heinous murders in Boston. They were working with the Drug Enforcement Administration to investigate and kept the FBI kind of out of the loop. In December of 1994, Whitey was tipped off by Connolly that they were about to be arrested over the Christmas season. The task force had evidence to charge Whitey and several others with racketeering and extortion. Whitey immediately went into hiding, and he left his associates behind to be arrested instead. Those are called fall guys, I believe. And Whitey had never been married, but he did have a long-term relationship with a woman named Teresa Stanley. She fled Boston with Whitey and spent four days over Christmas in New York with him. They spent New Year's Day in a hotel in New Orleans. And the next three weeks, they were in New York, L.A., San Francisco, before Teresa decided that she wanted to go back home to her kids in Boston. They ended up going first to Clearwater, Florida, where Whitey got a new ID, and then he drove Teresa back to Boston and dropped her off in a parking lot. Whitey met with Weeks in Dorchester, where Weeks brought Whitey another girlfriend, Catherine Craig. So he just drops one off and has one delivered. I didn't know you could have girlfriends delivered. I guess if you're a mob boss, you can. Whitey and Catherine went on the run together. The two both had plastic surgery to change their appearance and eventually settled in Santa Monica, California. They called themselves Charlie and Carol Gasco. They lived quiet lives, paying their rent in cash, trying to stay out of the public eye. Whitey spent most of his time watching TV, and Catherine went on long walks around the beach. They went on trips occasionally, but mostly stayed home, And they even went out and got AARP cards. He's changed his face and retired in comfort in California. In 1999, Whitey was officially named the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list. Now, at one point, they were the second most wanted man right behind Osama bin Laden. A $1 million reward was issued for information that would lead to his arrest, and he was featured on America's Most Wanted 16 times. Do you remember watching America's Most Wanted? All the time. So good. Yep. Authorities received a tip in June of 2011 saying that Whitey and Catherine were living in an apartment in Santa Monica. The next day, the Bolger Fugitive Task Force moved in, and they actually were able to arrest Whitey and Catherine with no incident. Whitey was charged with 19 counts of murder, conspiracy to commit murder, extortion, narcotics dis- distribution, and even money laundering. He was now 81 years old, his blonde hair had been dyed black, and he had a little bit of a belly. Inside his apartment walls, agents found almost a million dollars in cash, $822,000. They found fake IDs. They found a big collection of handguns. They found like 30 handguns and even some rifles as well. Whitey and Catherine were returned to Boston to face their trials. Catherine was charged with harboring a fugitive and took a plea deal in 2012 She was sentenced to eight years in prison and a hefty $150,000 fine. Eventually, she would get 
21 more counts for refusing to testify against Whitey. Both Flamini and Connolly were also convicted for their involvement in the murders and given a long prison sentences, which they definitely deserve. Well, I mean, if you go back, Connolly was an FBI agent that he turned and was working with Whitey was his original connection when Whitey was an informant, but he had kind of flipped as well and got in on the crime. Whitey pled not guilty to all the charges against them. His trial began in 2013 and a parade of former associates and enemies testified against him in a trial that lasted two months. They recounted stories of killing rival gang members, pushing guns in victims' faces, shakedowns, demanding cash for people. He was found guilty on 31 criminal counts, including participation in 11 murders. He was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences plus five years. He was also ordered to pay $19.5 million in restitution to the victim's families and to forfeit $25.2 million to the government. It remains unclear if any of the millions of dollars that he stole could actually be retrieved to pay these fines. To raise money for the victims, the government auctioned off more than 100 bins of items confiscated from Whitey. They had furniture, sunglasses, sneakers, hoodies, Jewelry, plus the cash they found in the walls of his hideout, were divided among the families and the estates of the victims of the people that he killed. So one interesting note from this case is that one juror in Whitey's case would later say that she regretted her decision to convict him after learning about the CIA LSD experiment. So she actually began writing letters to Whitey while he was in prison, and that's how she learned about MKUltra. According to her, it would have changed her position on the murder charges. She said that he didn't murder prior to LSD, so his brain may have been impacted and altered. So how could you really say he was guilty? Now, she would also admit that she would have convicted him on the other criminal charges, meaning basically he would have still likely died in prison. She just wouldn't have found him guilty for the murder charges. One FBI agent said that they assumed Whitey would try to use the LSD experiment in order to create an insanity defense. The problem is, though, that he lived a very long time as a quiet fugitive, showing that he was indeed capable of controlling any impulses that the LSD may have triggered. Jimmy, let's process this for a little bit. Like, what led this lady to write this guy letters in prison? Like, Kind of weird to me. That seems weird to me, too. I mean, we cover a lot of cases where people get married while they're in prison. The fact that she was a juror really bothers me that I I guess there's nothing preventing her from doing that. But I just find that really, really odd and off-putting that she did that. Now, Whitey spent time in several different prisons before being transferred to the U.S. Penitentiary Hazleton in West Virginia in October of 2018. He was 89 years old and in a wheelchair from a hip injury at the time. He was killed mere hours after his arrival. He was beaten beyond recognition with a lock and a sock. His assailants also gouged his eyes out and tried to cut his tongue with a serrated spoon. Then they wrapped him in a blanket and lifted him into his bed, tucking him in as if he was there asleep so so he wouldn't be found so quickly. The decision to transfer Whitey to a notoriously violent prison and put him in gen pop in general population is pretty controversial. He was well known. He had a lot of enemies and this obviously put him at risk and he was in a wheelchair and couldn't defend himself. 
One of the workers said that the inmates were thought to be affiliated with mobster activity and certainly would have had it out for Whitey Bulger. The attackers were immediately put in solitary confinement. They remained there for more than two years as they continued to investigate the murder and find out who was involved. Earlier this year, two of those individuals were transferred. The other attacker, who is mafia hitman Fred Gies, remains in solitary from that murder three years ago. In the year 2020, Whitey's brother William filed a $200 million lawsuit against the federal prison system for the wrongful death of his brother. What do you make of that? Is it the prison system's fault that Whitey got killed? And if it was or it wasn't, do they deserve compensation for an 89-year-old mass murderer being killed in prison? Yeah, I mean, I kind of see his point. Like, he had so many enemies, you need to do your best to protect them. I mean... Do you? Or is I, that his... I don't, I don't know where... Like, I understand I would putting like former to, police officers, not letting them be in Gen Pop. I get that. But... I don't know about doing that just because somebody's notorious and well-known. Yeah, Why I mean, they get special treatment in prison? I hear you, but I mean, I guess it's it's our job to try to make everybody as safe as possible. And if you know that this guy's going to get the crap beat out of him by all these people that are obviously pissed off at him, I think you're, I think you there's a there's an element of being negligent. Like if you know a bad situation is going to happen and you don't do anything to prevent it, it's kind of on you. But I mean, I see your point. He's a criminal. He's there with other criminals because they all did bad things, but I don't know. He's a, he's almost a 90 year old man who, you know, is going to be attacked by these people. Like maybe put him somewhere else. Yeah. Why, why transfer him anyway? He's 89 years old. He probably should have been in some type of medical facility with his hip injury anyway, but that lawsuit has not been settled yet. We'll follow along and it'll be interesting to see if he does get any money back from that. And, you know, we think about mobsters, like I mentioned, watching the Godfather, you think about the sixties and seventies. And I mean, he was killed three years ago. This isn't ancient history. Whitey Bulger terrorized Boston for decades and just recently died. So this is not uh, going back to the 1920s and, and running moonshine because of prohibition or anything. Although he was in Atlanta, put in the same prison block that Al Capone had been put in. So that's an interesting fact. Like I said, Whitey Bulger just seems to pop up everywhere. He was in the same cell block that Al Capone had been in. He was involved in MK Ultra. He went to Alcatraz. He knew a lot of these other criminals. It was even thought that he might have been the murderer of Jimmy Hoffa. So he just kind of pops up everywhere, and I wanted to do a deeper dive into his life and his criminal activities. So I hope people enjoyed this as much as I did. Yeah, you mentioned the one movie that was made. What was the name of that? I hadn't seen it yet. The Departed? The Departed. Yeah, I've never seen that one, but I definitely want to now. And I mean, I think we need to make our own movie based on this guy. Like there's, like you said earlier, like at the beginning of the show, this guy really is like the Forrest Gump of crime. He's been involved in so many different things. It's really interesting. It really is. So thanks for hanging out with us through this one. We we appreciate you listening to our show. Uh, In case you're new to the show, we do have episodes on Fridays, True Crime to Go. Those are shortened episodes. You can listen to on your commute to work or when you're taking a break between meetings. We have a Patreon site where you can go and get additional content for small donations. We also have merchandise, but the greatest thing you you can do to help our show is what, John? Yeah, take a few seconds to leave a rating and a review, and that doesn't cost anything to do, just a few seconds of your time, and it is a huge help to the show. 
really gets us into the eyes and ears of new fans. Guys, we really appreciate you. We'll be back next week with another case. Until next crime, this has been True Crimecast. You've listened to True Crimecast, distributed by Stoveleg Media. Check out stoveleg.com to find out more about your hosts and to find other podcasts to listen to. Stoveleg Media, igniting conversation.